X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jeff Smith in Portland, Oregon. It is the Ides of January, January 15th. Hmm, never mind. It is not the Ides of January. The Ides of January is on the 13th. What the heck? How come? I understand. Today, back in the day, January 15th, 1870, Harper's Weekly published a political cartoon by Thomas Nast connecting the Democratic Party with a donkey. Thomas Nast was a strong critic of the Democratic Party political machine in New York. Nast later gave the symbol of the elephant to the Republican Party. He also helped to popularize the friendlier, fatter image of Santa Claus. Today, back in the day, January 15, 1908, Alpha Kappa Alpha became the first Greek letter organization founded and established by African-American college women. United States Vice President-elect Kamala Harris is an Alpha Kappa Alpha member. And today, back in the day, January 15, 1908, Mueller versus Oregon was argued in the Supreme Court. The question at hand, whether the state of Oregon could limit the working hours of women to 10 hours or less per day. And the Supreme Court ruled that, yes, Oregon could limit the working hours of women. The matter was not decided on the foundation of equality of sexes, but because, and I'm quoting, healthy mothers are essential to vigorous offspring, the physical well-being of women becomes an object of public interest and care in order to preserve the strength and vigor of the race. Thankfully, Supreme Court writing has changed in the last 112 years. Although, there may be some members of the Supreme Court who'd like to turn back the clock a bit. The facts of the case when Kurt Muller, the owner of a laundry business, was convicted of violating Oregon labor laws by making a female employee work more than 10 hours in a single day. He was fined $10. Muller appealed to the Oregon Supreme Court and then the United States Supreme Court, both of which upheld the constitutionality of the labor law and affirmed his conviction. This was in the midst of the Lochner era, during which the Supreme Court significantly circumscribed social welfare legislation. Florence Kelly committed the National Consumers League to the defense of the Oregon 10-hour law. Their research director, Josephine Goldmark, prepared a path-breaking legal brief. Just two pages consisted of abstract traditional legal arguments. Over 100 pages offered sociological evidence. Her brother-in-law, Louis D. Brandeis, argued the case in the U.S. Supreme Court. Those Brandeis, of course, would end up on that Supreme Court. Goldmark and Brandeis' innovation would later become known as the Brandeis Brief. Many others would be modeled on it. But Goldmark and her team assembled most of the pages, meaning much of the credit goes to her. Today, we have an interview with Multnomah County District Attorney Mike Schmidt. X-ray. And let's start with a quick six local rundown. The vaccines are rolling out. To create efficiency, Kaiser Permanente, Providence, Legacy Health, and Oregon Health and Sciences University, that's OHSU to you, will be pooling their vaccine doses and staff. The goal is to set up a combined clinic at the Oregon Convention Center next week. The opportunity comes as Governor Kate Brown has announced that all people over the age of 65 and teachers can access the vaccine. One of the challenges in inoculating large groups is supply, of course. Kaiser Permanente Chief Operating Officer Wendy Watson shared that probably the biggest constraint in all of this is how fast the vaccine doses are flowing into these mass vaccination sites. So let's hope for more deliveries and fast. Meanwhile, the Oregonian is reporting that Oregon has almost 200,000 unused COVID vaccines and the state's attempts to track them are a mess. New data is showing that Oregon's tracking system for the vaccines is full of errors. Two hospitals haven't administered any shots, according to the state's inventory, although the hospitals say they have. Some recipients have more doses on hand than they were allocated. More than 20 locations who were given small volumes of vaccine appear to have used none at all. Governor Kate Brown did set a statewide goal to administer 12,000 vaccines a day by the end of the week. 
and Oregon reached that goal last Friday. 12,039 shots were administered. That said, the Oregon Health Authority didn't know that until yesterday when reporting caught up. As of Wednesday, Oregon reported that 129,782 shots had been administered from a total of 321,225 doses received. So while Oregon has been better than most states in terms of keeping total number of people getting COVID on the lower side, we're trailing 36 states in pace for getting shots into arms. For those who are curious, my wife got her vaccine. She's a healthcare worker. Oddly, she's scared of needles. So am I. I'm not criticizing. But now... She says she feels like a superhero. My dad, he's over 65. My brother, well, he's a teacher. So I guess I'm the only one who's going to get sick. Stay back. And now it's time for your daily dose of data. Yesterday, the Oregon Health Authority reported 1,152 new cases of the coronavirus. 162 of these cases were in Washington County and 185 in Multnomah County. The OHA reported 29 new deaths and fewer hospitalizations in Oregon. Currently, there are 415 hospitalized COVID-19 patients in the state. Mark Scholl, Clackamas County Commissioner, is not going to resign. What's posted on Facebook doesn't just stay on Facebook. Commissioner Mark Scholl posts on Facebook have been collected into a blog by Chris Waller, a Jennings Lodge resident and Oregon House District 40 leader for the county's Democratic Party. The blog is called Documenting Mark Scholl's Racism. It shares Scholl's anti-immigrant, Islamophobic, and transphobic sentiments over the last two years. Clackamas County District Attorney, local legislators, leaders in the Muslim community, and neighboring county leaders have condemned the statements and demanded his resignation. On Thursday, the Clackamas County Board of Commissioners formally censured him. Here's the quote. It's the consensus of the Board of County Commissioners. is in the best interest of Clackamas County that Commissioner Mark Scholl resign his commission post effective immediately. Scholl's Facebook page had been shut down. He stated, though, he's not going to resign. Scholl's quote, My intention at this time is to carry out work of the people of Clackamas County. Thank you. I suspect he didn't post that on Facebook. The legislative session is delayed. The legislative session slated to begin in person on January 19th will now be delayed due to threats of violence on the Capitol. At this point, the delay will be a minimum of two days. Though the session will technically still begin on the 19th, the House and Senate will not meet and committee hearings have been disallowed due to the need for staff to support proceedings. Senate President Peter Courtney provided perspective. Quote, there's concern that they don't quite know what the level of the intensity of the demonstrations might be because of what's happened before to the Oregon Capitol and in D.C. Some more school opening updates. We recently shared the news of the school openings in Lake Oswego. Here are some more. Portland Public Schools, they've released their plans for reopening in-person classes. They plan to begin hybrid learning as soon as January 25th, starting with 16 elementary schools and two high schools. Students kindergarten through third grade will start the re-entry process with two hours of in-person instruction a day. That was about the amount of in-person instruction I wanted in that age. Maybe COVID has some silver linings. The district does not release the number of students or specific schools they're considering. The first schools will be ones with child care on site and schools where more students struggle to achieve. One consideration is the amount of vaccinations available and the logistics for inoculating school staff. States are going to release further guidance on January 19th. Oh, plans might change. Good news is a racing pigeon from Oregon named Joe is found in Australia. News sources reported yesterday that a racing pigeon from Oregon recently showed up in Australia, 8,000 miles away. 
The person who found the bird named him Joe after President-elect Joe Biden. Due to concerns of disease spread, Australian officials had determined that the pigeon would be terminated, but the U.S. leg band identifying the pigeon may be fake. The identification connected to the number on the leg band does not match the type of pigeon found. So for now, the pigeon is safe and probably tired and jet-lagged after that 8,000-mile trip. Or it's a local Australian bird just trying to be an Oregonian. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Up next, Joe and Jefferson Smith speak with Multnomah County District Attorney Mike Schmidt. Schmidt was officially sworn in last week, and he joined us to discuss his priorities for 2021, including his continuing work towards restorative justice. I think he's with us. Is the is the, our current district attorney, Mike Schmidt, world champion and Hall of Fame third baseman of the Philadelphia Phillies, who came out of retirement to serve us as the top law enforcement official in the county. Mike, thanks for being with us. Hey, good to see you. Good to be with you. How you liking the new job? It sure seems like an uneventful time in history. <laughs> well, yeah, and you know, my term, uh, you were talking about inauguration, uh, started Monday, uh, also last Monday on Zoom with an inauguration. So, uh, but uh, yeah, I got a, I got an early, early jump on it in August. Congratulations. Do you, were there any needs for legions of armed guards to protect your inauguration or did it happen without the, the need for that? It was a peaceful transition of power from uh, me finishing out the previous term to me taking on my term. So you did not challenge your own ascension. You, you shook your own hand. You said congratulations to yourself and you felt comfortable handing power over from left hand to your own right hand. That's right. I attended. I was there for the whole thing. What judge did you choose to do the swearing? Uh, you know, I was really honored to have uh, our first uh, black woman Supreme Court justice and former Multnomah County judge, uh, Adrian Nelson, swear me in. It was a really great honor and privilege for me. That's neat. Today is January 14th. We got a text in. On January 14th, as we think about today... What are the big priorities for the district attorney's office? Either the stuff that's totally obvious or the stuff that people not, might not be as aware of. Yeah, you know, I mean, when they're DA, obviously your your job both is political, uh, but also you're running a 225-person law firm. So, you know, my priorities are both internal to uh, look at my operations, put together my uh, executive management team, uh, you know, uh, support the attorneys who are doing the good work, keep that moving. But then also on the political side, uh, you know, there's a lot of legislation coming up uh, down in Salem, uh, especially on criminal justice reform that I intend to go down and support uh, and focusing on our budget for the county commission and what my asks are going to be, which my biggest priority for that is forming a conviction integrity unit uh, that we can all be proud of in this county. Criminalization, you've critiqued this, the criminalization of poverty and addiction uh, causes additional problems in the county. How do you tackle that as district attorney? And one of the ongoing questions, not only in this conversation, but knock on wood, hopefully our future ones, is how you balance your uh, verve as a reformer, as someone who thinks that the uh, cudgel of criminal justice needs to be wielded in a way with social justice in mind and your desire and requirement to serve the law and the order 
how do you approach criminalization of poverty and addiction? What does that end up meaning for your gig? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think first and foremost, my job as district attorney uh, has to be about keeping our community safe uh, and adding to public safety. And I think, you know, that dovetails uh, really well with this conversation, which is, you know, is criminalizing poverty and addiction, uh, does that lead to better public safety outcomes or not? And, you know, frequently, I would argue, especially in the case of, you know, possession of small amounts of uh, drugs, things of that nature, trespass, um, further criminalization of those issues doesn't lead to better outcomes. Uh, so I think it's balance, uh, you know, people's rights in our community to safety and also focusing on the data and the research and what will actually make us more safe. And it's not always the way we've been doing things. And that you were a district attorney years ago and you uh, had to also have a first day and a first week. Were there things that you either did or wish you would have done in your first day or first week or questions that you wish you would have been asked in your first day or first week that you now want to ask our Portland or Multnomah County district attorney? The, the biggest memory I have of my first week, other than being sworn in by Judge Wells, was that there was that week a trial was was held of uh, the the scion of the creator of Sun Valley, who had been arrested uh, weeks before, g- driving 160 miles an hour along what was then I-84 North and is I-80 North rather, and. Uh, and uh, had a, a big sack full of marijuana, and I, uh, I had to testify in it to make it clear that the suggestion of impropriety in the district attorney's office hadn't actually happened. That is that is my main memory. But I but I do have thoughts of of well, what it was like being a district attorney. That uh, given the opportunity, I would like to ask Mike about. Fire away. Okay. Well. One of the, one of the things that I kind of discovered by accident, and that I, I put a great deal of emphasis on in my office, was the need to help police with their investigations and to suggest. And the way it happened, there was a, a burglary that had happened, and in Hermiston, and it had been assigned to a relatively young policeman. And he brought the case in, and I said, okay, well, we need to do this and this and this. And I heard from the chief how much the chief had appreciated that and how much the cop had appreciated that. And the reason that that, that reminded me is last uh, a year ago, September, we had a burglar come into our house and steal my grandson's computer and steal two checks off my shelf, one to me and one by me, that the burglar then ran through an ATM and got the money from both of them, and we were able to get a picture of him, and the the, the policeman who investigated got a picture of him from the savings and loan, or rather the credit union, where he'd run the checks, and so we had an identification, we had a name, and the guy was arrested on another burglary 
down in Clackamas County where it's to be arraigned on the 1st of December, and your office said they were not going to pursue it because they didn't have enough information and maybe he could have got the checks from somebody else. Uh, so he wasn't the burglar. So what's the question? And it, struck, and it struck me that if the if the district attorney had called the cop and said we need this, 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 that might have happened. And I wonder what responsibility do you think your staff has in giving guidance to further investigations needed so that burglars like this, because a guy who's burglaring in, in our house in Irvington is probably burglaring wherever he can. Sure. That's a question. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, we we work together. We are uh, a team in, on all of these cases. Uh, our office has a good track record. But I was just talking with uh, the the PPB brass uh, chief Lavelle and his team, and you know, this was an issue uh, that that they brought up. They said, you know, when your office um, rejects cases, so rejects cases, and you'll know this, but for uh, the audience means that our DDA reviews it, looks for all the facts, the evidence, applies it to the law, and then determines whether or not we could uh, meet our burden in court. Uh, the police uh, chief said to me, you know, when your office rejects cases, it'd be really great to have more individualized feedback for the officer on, you know, what can they do better? Uh, and they identified the, the feedback process that we have now. And uh, and asked that, you know, that's something we could strengthen. So there's a work group uh, that was previously together on this topic. So we're going to revisit it and see if, you know, that's something that we can strengthen. Uh, and I think the other thing that you mentioned is, you know, connecting information and evidence. And it's a challenge. Uh, you know, uh, in Multnomah County, the crush of business is, is so large uh, that, you know, individual deputies, you know, need to do what they uh, can to help uh, reach out to police officers, make sure that we have the evidence and, and contact victims. Uh, so that's just something that we have to keep our eye on and, and, and do as good of a job as we can to make sure we're making those connections and, and not de- rejecting cases uh, just because it's not all packaged up. Uh, but when the evidence exists, like it sounds like uh, maybe in your case, it did exist. It was just a matter of connecting uh, things together into the right report. We've heard that. Yeah, from, the re- we've, the re- we've heard reason. that. We've heard that from listeners. In fact, the that uh, and and even our something we talked about on this show was about identity theft. And you'd get the you'd get a uh, you'd get imagery in a Fred Meyer, but then the Fred Meyer would say, "No, we can't release it. We won't do it unless the police request." And the police say, "No, we'll only do it for ten thousand dollar offenses or larger." And we'll say, "Well, listen, they'll do ten thousand overall, but not any given check transaction." But I want to keep the questions cracking. Mayor Ted Wheeler has expressed that he'd like to see tougher penalties for protesters, especially those who repeatedly charged with minor offenses. Do you agree with the mayor? Do you think the police should have more leeway when it comes to things like uh, recording people at demonstrations? Have you talked to the mayor about this? Where do you stand? And, and also, yeah. the, related to that, is how do you feel about the Kettling order that just came down? Uh, well, uh, yeah, the mayor and I, have uh, we sat down, we, we spoke with each other on this issue. You know, I let him know, and, and to the mayor's credit, uh, he's not a uh, public safety, it's not his line of uh, expertise, uh, but you know, so we talked about it, and I told him, I said, you know, it's not the sentences uh, that aren't long enough. I mean, we have property, uh, repeat property crime offender sentences in this state uh, that you can go to prison for doing things like smashing out windows and, and that type of thing. So it's not the sentence length that's the issue. The, the challenge has been um, making those arrests. 
getting the people who are actually smashing the windows before they, uh, you know, disappear back into the night. And then when we do uh, have the evidence that we need to, to make those cases. So part of that, uh, you asked about uh, surveillance. You know, I think in many instances of policing across this country and even in our county with Gresham, uh, police officers have body cams. Uh, PPB doesn't. You know, I think that's something uh, that we could look at when officers are engaged in protests. You know, body camera evidence uh, could be very useful in us identifying people. So I think that there, there is a role um, when there's criminal activity uh, going on uh, to have the normal surveillance tools that, that many law enforcement across this country use for, for evidence gathering. Uh, I think that that could be helpful. There were a raft of resignations and retirements among Portland Police Bureau members, and there's been a challenge of morale. What lessons do you draw from that? Is that, in fact, reinforce lessons? Well, yeah, we need to rethink community safety and, in fact, have additional kinds of community safety officers. Is that something else that's going on? Any lessons we should draw? or And how does that interact with your work? Well, it certainly interacts with our work. Uh, we need to uh, make cases, and, and that means gathering evidence, talking to witnesses, uh, and when police officers are spread thin uh, and running from call to call, uh, you know, some of that work can unfortunately uh, fall through the cracks and not get completed. And then we can't make the cases we need. So it'll absolutely impact our work. You know, morale, uh, is, there's no question. Uh, the Portland Police Bureau and the officers who uh, were out every night, um, you know, they took a huge morale hit. Uh, you know, I think that there are lessons that we can learn from that. Um, I've spoken to many officers uh, individually. Uh, we've had great conversations. You know, I've talked to them about what does defund the police mean? And, and they have thoughts and they have ideas. Uh, I've talked to them about restorative justice. And we've had deep conversations about authors that we've read. And we have a lot of really good police officers who want to do the right thing, uh, want to be a part of this movement. And, you know, I think whenever in any situation we paint people with a broad brush doesn't matter who who we're talking about um you know we miss that we miss their humanity we miss the nuance we miss uh you know the engagement so you know i think that hopefully they can be as part of the conversation but we do need to have the conversation about what does this community expect policing to look like going forward what does the community want uh portland police to focus their resources on and what do they not want Portland police to focus their resources on? I mean, we need to have that conversation. Uh, and I think police need to be a part of that, just like all the community members that are impacted and have been infected uh, historically by Portland police uh, policies. So, uh, yeah, you know, morale is tough. It's, it's, a, it's a challenging time to be in law enforcement across the, across the nation. Uh, but I just encourage people to not think of anybody as a monolith. Um, there are just a lot of really great dedicated people who really love our community. And, and I can work with anybody who loves our community. And, and I think that's how we should all be. One thing Very we've got to cover before we go is about the police union contract. Dad, you had a question about the police union contract? Yeah. Uh, what, what What's your opinion on the arbitration issue? And uh, 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 do you think you should weigh in on it? Yeah, it's a good question on, on the weighing in on it. You know, I'm still, I'm still new at this, trying to feel out you know, what is my lane? What is not my lane? Obviously, uh, I'm not in the city uh, in terms of a city official. I'm a county official, uh, and I won't have any um, say. But I do think, you know, it, it goes to accountability. And, 
if there are lessons that we are to draw from everything that happened this summer, accountability is something that our community is really uh, calling for. So the arbitration issue, I think, is a big one. Uh, and, and to what you're referencing is uh, that even when officers are disciplined, the arbitrator ultimately overturns that discipline and reinstates officers uh, frequently back into work. And so I think that's a big issue. Um, but I think people also need to uh, educate themselves, as I have been educating myself around you know, what does bargaining mean and, and what can we, what's realistic to, uh, to expect to get out of this process? And, you know, I think it comes down to what I've learned from talking to others is if we want changes, you know, we have to be willing to, um, you know, pay for that. Go give uh, the police union things that, that they are going to be interested in. That's going to be tough. That's going to be a real challenge for City Hall to, uh, to navigate um, this issue. Well, Mike, they, your staff said you had a hard out at 845. We would keep you as long as you could go, but we don't want you not to accept our next invitation because we seemed like liars. Do you got to you got to get cracking? I do. I do. I got to go meet with our uh, chief criminal judge, Judge Albright, which I'm really looking forward to. Her and I haven't gotten to sit down one on one since I took over. So well, uh, it's an important meeting and I don't want to leave her hanging. Say hello to Cheryl Albright and have a wonderful day. And thank you so much for spending time and thanks for your service. Indeed, yes, thank absolutely. You. Thanks for having me. Good to talk to you all. X-Ray. Thanks, District Attorney Mike Schmidt, for joining the local and for his many years of Hall of Fame baseball play. Just to be clear, Mike Schmidt, District Attorney of Multnomah County, never played baseball for the Philadelphia Phillies. I'm not saying he couldn't have done it. He just didn't do it. Also, special thanks, production team executive editor, Will Romy. The funny thing is, when I say his name and he edits, he's the one putting it in there. It's a little meta. 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 Supporting editors and writers, Jonathan Covington-Bram, Brian Miller, Julia Oppenheimer, Carly Quadros, Jaleesa Ringering, Miranda Selinger, writer Sherwood, and Sam Smargiasi. Big ups to co-executive director Emily Gilliland. What's big ups? That's what the kids say, or at least they did some number of years ago, and I'm Jefferson Smith. Thanks for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing, giving a five-star review, and thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-ray. X-ray.